Church family, hope you're doing well this week. I want to read you an article that I found several years ago entitled this, Why Doesn't Our Church Have More Programs? Asks Family That Never Volunteers for Anything. <laughs> Says a local church family that has never once volunteered to help out in any capacity is constantly complaining about their church's lack of programs, an exasperated pastor confirmed. The family fills out comment cards asking for more fun events, more classes in the children's ministry, more potlucks, more outreaches, and more fellowship nights, though they weren't willing to lift a finger to help in any of these areas. The mother said, why don't we have more youth and children's programs? It says, if this keeps up, we're going to have to go to the megachurch down the road. Enough is enough. And the father said, someone should really step up and take our young men on a camping trip. They need to learn what it means to be a real man. Not me, of course. Lord, here am I. Send someone else. <laughs> the pastor met with him this week and said he'd be willing to start a new fellowship night on Wednesday evenings. Are you guys up to host it, he asked. The couple stormed away in a huff. Now, hopefully you realize the good news is that is not a real news story. That is a satirical article. The bad news is the reason we laugh and the reason there is such satire is because that kind of self-centered, consumeristic mindset operates in many of our hearts and many of our churches today. The reason that's there is because there is a sense in which the consumerism of our culture creeps into our lives spiritually, and the way we view church is a place we go once a week, maybe twice a week, and we are there to be consumers and get something that makes us satisfied. And when that happens, we cease to be a gospel-driven church. Last week, we're walking through the book of Philippians, and we see in chapter 1 Paul's overwhelming concern that the church in Philippi understand that in spite of the suffering taking place, the gospel is moving forward. And he calls them and writes them, and we watched last week as he challenged them and gives them this call to live out their citizenship worthy of the gospel in a manner that is suitable and fitting the gospel their citizenship, their heavenly citizenship that we have been given if we are, in fact, in Christ Jesus, the citizenship that to this world we stand as ambassadors proclaiming. And I shared last week that that, that command, live as citizens, really is the central command. Last week, this week, and for the next several sermons we will walk through in the book of Philippi. And so what today is is further unpacking what it looks like. And if that kind of citizenship is going to reign, what Paul is aware is this kind of disunified, self-seeking mindset can rear its head no matter how good and healthy the church and bring destruction. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 1. So coming off of live, conduct yourselves, live out your citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ, here's what he says, Philippians 2, chapter 1, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, overflowing, abounding, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent on one purpose, do absolutely nothing at any time from selfishness 
or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul says, in light of this church in Philippi, in light of what I've just told you, and he rattles off four if statements. Now, when we read those, those are not questions. Paul's not writing actual questions as if there is any encouragement in Christ. He's writing rhetorical questions, so it's better maybe this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since there is an encouragement in Christ, an encouragement that calls us, that bids us come and die and follow him faithfully, since there is a comfort, a consoling of the love of God in our lives, especially when we see it on the backdrop of suffering, if there is any, or since there is any fellowship of the Spirit, that word fellowship, koinonia, that same word that is any fellow sharing and participation of an end, meaning that since there is a fellowship, because all of us who are in Christ have the same Holy Spirit living within us, who seeks to unify us, there is a fellowship, a mutual sharing. And he says, if there is any affection and compassion, both of which are words that speak to a deep-seated um, down to the point of deep, even emotion, care and affection. It says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort of the love of God, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion, both from God towards us, but also from the church in Philippi towards Paul. He says, since these things are truth and exist and are real in and through our lives, make my joy complete, fulfill my joy. He, he gives them a personal exhortation. And that command, make my joy complete, is the strongest way you can write a command in the Greek language. It's not simply just a, a suggestion. It's not even just a strongly worded command. It is a command with the force of urgency. The same kind of command if you see someone walking in the middle of the street and a car's about to hit them and you command them to get out of the road, that's what he's saying. There is a sense of urgency, of, uh, of strength. He says, make my joy complete. How? By being unified. And, and, and he gives us four ways that we see what unity looks like. Look down at the text with me. He says, by being of the same mind, by being of the same mind, literally to, to choose to guide your mind in a certain way by continually in the present tense and actively a choice you and I make, think, lead and think your thoughts in a certain way, being of the same mind. What does that mean? It means thinking God's things God's way. Amen. To be of the same mind means we think what God thinks about what he thinks about means we think about what he thinks about. It means we think about things how he thinks about things. It means we are, we are unified in thought because we are thinking the truth of the Word of God as he wrote it and intends. It says, be unified. He mentions love, maintaining the same love, that, that agape love. Remember what was his prayer back in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, that, that the agape would abound among us that it would abound, that it would overflow, that it would be, and he says, maintain that same unconditional affection and love. What unity looks like, we think God's truth, which is why, by the way, when we come to Scripture, our opinions never matter. It matters what God's Word says. 
And as we think what God's word says, it means that we choose to see each other and value each other with the same value that Jesus places on each one of us. That is his unconditional agape love, maintaining the same love, not just maintaining the same love, but it says, my Bible says, united in spirit or literally in the Greek, being one-souled. The idea that we live and move and breathe as a family, as if we're one person, one body. Not just that, but intent, that word there for leading your thoughts, thinking your thoughts a direct, direct way on one intent, one purpose. What would that purpose be? God's will, God's mission. To glorify God in and through in everything we do and to see the gospel progress through Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth Amen. until the Lord returns. This is what unity looks like. He says, make my joy complete by being unified, by being unified, by, 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 by thinking the way God thinks, by loving the way God loves, by, by walking as one body as we ought to in Christ, intent on the one purpose. Church family, this is what unity is. It means a church in unity will live and move and breathe as, as if we are one-souled for one purpose. It means we will actively choose to think God's thoughts about God's world means we will be driven by a singular purpose, that purpose being Christ, Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's gospel, Christ's glory, and Christ's return. It's nothing short than what is unity, a church that is truly driven by and for the gospel, and for whom that determines everything. This is in contrast, church family, to a church that's divided because realize a church that is divided, a church that does not choose to think truth based on how God says what is true, a church that chooses not to love as God says to love, a church that chooses to move about not as one soul, a church who walks in this way will never move forward for God's kingdom. They may move forward for their own kingdom and, and likely for many of their own little kingdoms, but not for God's kingdom. A church that's divided is not going to withstand the opposition of a world that is hostile and set against Christ in every way. And ultimately this, a church that is not united is a failed reflection of the God whom they proclaim, who is triune, one God, three persons, three persons in unity. Now listen, church family, it doesn't say that inside of unity doesn't mean that there can't be a diversity of thought or there can't be times that there's disagreement over certain things. Absolutely. Unity doesn't mean complete and total conformity to each other. It does mean conformity to Christ. But it means that the things that we disagree on or the diversity of opinion are not over things that God has said, thus saith the Lord, there is no more to say. It means... We don't have various opinions on what real theology is. It means we don't have various, our opinions are things like this. I think the church carpet should be red. Well, I think the church carpet should be till. I think we should have concrete floors. <laughs> can there be a different, can we be in unity and, and disagree over that? Absolutely. And we can agree to disagree. It means churches shouldn't split over the placement of water fountains. And you laugh, that's a real story that we don't have time for today. Unity doesn't mean that there's no place to call out sin amongst ourselves. 
It doesn't mean there's no place to call out sin amongst leaders or members. Paul does it in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 4 of Philippians. But it does mean that our approach to calling out and dealing with sin follows what Scripture says and not just the way that we would go about it. And I'll remind you that unity does not come because we foster it. It comes because we submit to the Holy Spirit in truth, and the Holy Spirit then produces it amongst us, binding us together in unity and fellowship. Now, that does not mean, church family, that to be a unified church body, we are just passive and we just go, well, Lord, we're not unified, so Holy Spirit, why aren't you doing your job? Listen, the Holy Spirit's always doing His job. You and I have a part to play. We've got to yield to Him. And what does yielding to Him look like? Well, look down at the text. Look at what he says. Paul says, make my joy complete by being unified. Now, how's that going to play out? Look at verse 3. Do nothing. Absolutely. There's a double negation in the original language, which means never at any time under any circumstance operate in this way. And he says two things, selfish ambition or empty conceit. Selfish ambition referring to a self-seeking of a political office by unfair means. To the squabbles between people who are jockeying for position, power, and place. At its core, it, it has no conception of service or giving, but is only aimed at one's own profit and power. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from empty conceit. Literally means vain glory. Glory that's empty from an exaggerated self-inflated view of oneself. It's the idea of a person who is conceited without reason, who's deluded, ambitious for their own reputation, and they are willing to challenge others to do whatever they have to to prove that their idea and their way is right. He says these, these ways should never be found amongst us, but rather, he says, in humility of mind, regard. Now, humility of mind, church family, humility of mind is literally a term that means lowly thinking, to think lowly. The idea is that in humility of mind, I value or I assess my value appropriately in light of my actual standing before God. So humility at its core is seeing myself correctly before God. And here's what's interesting about humility is in, in ancient times, in the Greco-Roman days, uh, it was very clear amongst writers that hubris, this uncontrolled, boastful, proud arrogance was very much seen as a vice. But here's what's interesting. Humility, this word, this word was seen as foolishness and a joke in the culture that the church in Philippi would have been living in. To think lowly of oneself, to, to not think less of oneself, but to think of oneself less. You see, humility of mind here is not some kind of self-loathing, woe is me, oh, I just am terrible. You know, someone comes and pays you a compliment and says, hey, you did a really good job there. Oh, no, I didn't really do a good job. That, listen, woe is me-ism can be just as proud and arrogant as boastfulness. Because pride is not just the loud braggart 
It can also be the shy introvert who does nothing but always think about themselves and what do people think of me and how am I viewed and woe is me. See, pride is simply when your eyes are nonstop on yourself. Humility is the opposite of that. It's seeing myself before God correctly. It's estimating myself before my creator, being dependent and trusting. It's not self-focused, but it's God-focused and, and sees itself correctly. Church family, humility means you can be a humble person and be confident of who God made you. It means you can be confident in the gifts he gave you. As long as you understand the only reason you're good in those giftings are because he gave you that gifting. It means, church family, if you and I are in Christ, there is no place for us to have some kind of tail tucked between our legs. Woe is me. I don't really matter. I'm not valued. If you and I are in Christ, then it means we, if anybody understand, we are valued in the eyes of God because Jesus died for us. But it also means we understand that in the eyes of God, we are his children not God. God is God. It means if we're humble, we see ourselves as servants, as saints, as children, as family. Humility of mind, and in this humility, in this seeing ourselves correctly before God, we are to regard. It's, it's another word for thinking, and it means to reckon. It literally means to, to engage in an intellectual process where you lead your thoughts to a certain place. It's present tense, meaning it should be every moment of our lives. It's active, meaning no one can do it for you and I. We must make the choice to do it. And by the way, church family, you want to know one of the great truths of Scripture? If you are in Christ today, saved by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, then you and I possess the ability to live out this command. Isn't that incredible? God didn't ask us to live any way that he does not give us the power to be able to live. Not only that, it says being in Christ, he's given us the mind of Christ. Therefore, there's the ability to choose to lead my thoughts. And what am I leading my thoughts to? to value others as of a greater, superior value than yourself. Now catch it. He's not saying to degrade yourself in comparison to others. He says, you know and you see who you really are in Christ before God. And in that place, in that humility, you lead your mind to when you see others, you value them as even more valuable than your own life. Which is why he says the next thing, that we're not only to look out to our own interests, meaning, listen, Paul's not crazy, he understands. In looking out for others, you still got to make sure you eat your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But that you and I don't become driven by the pursuit of our interests. Instead, we look out for the interests of others. Church family, it's a value judgment reminding us that our tendency is going to be to take our eyes and to turn inward to ourselves. We, we see this all over the place, church family. In fact, I see this all the time in church leaders, pastors, whom really like the pretty influential people, but not the people that can't really add to their platform. 
who use their congregations to build up their ministry, who constantly promote their own stuff. And I don't have a problem with the guy who writes a book saying, hey, I wrote a book, would love for you to buy it. But it's the -the over-the-top promotion, the ambition. See this amongst small groups. How many times has there been a pastor who's come to a giant small group and said, man, if we could split this small group into two or three groups that could then keep growing, and what do they say? Don't you dare split our small group. Not that the desire to split would be because we might actually reach more people if we split up. Sometimes that happens to churches. God's really moving in the life of a church. You know what we should do? We should take what God's doing here, and we should build an even greater builder building in another part of the city instead of the pattern of the New Testament, which would be, you know what, maybe there's a part of the city where there's no church. Maybe we should keep the church here, but we should plant a new church. Or maybe we should help a church that's struggling in that area. How many times have, has this happened in the church? Church family, we are in desperate need of volunteers in the nursery. Amen, pastor. I'll pray someone steps up and serves. And we laugh. But I've been at churches where deacons have said, I will never serve in the nursery, even though it's required, preschool director. Wait a minute, so the person who holds the office that literally means servant won't serve? See this in churches when we fight over praise style or not getting to worship my way, my style, my songs, my this, my that. Church family, if we're more concerned over worshiping our way, I'm not really sure that what we're doing is worship. I used the example last week. People walk away and say, hmm, how was church today? It was all right. I didn't really get anything from the pastor's sermon. Now, listen, I'm not saying you got to leave today or any Sunday and go, man, Wes preached a great sermon. I'm not telling you that. This isn't some subtle form of spiritual manipulation. (laughs) What I am saying is, if the word is being preached correctly, applied rightly, then whether or not you had a mountaintop experience in that sermon does not matter. One, if the word's being preached rightly, there's always something we can take from it. Two, that sermon that you say didn't speak to you just pulled that person on the other side of the auditorium off the cliff. Because you know what, church family? Church is not about you and me. It's about God. God's will, God's work, God's purposes in and through our lives. And just to be clear, church family, there is no example that I am using here that is some subtle, ooh, what's pastor got coming down, coming down for the new year? All right, I don't play passive aggressive with sermons. I'm using just generic examples that we see from various places to drive at this point. We see selfish ambition and vain glory come out in all different ways amongst us. When Scripture has called us, if we're going to be unified, then to be a gospel-driven church, we must walk in unity through humility. And if we're going to do that, then it demands that we take our thoughts captive. You notice the use of that? Be of the same mind, intent on one purpose. 
regard. Later on, we'll see regard again. There is, there is this intentionality. And so if I, and I can give you this. Let me, let me back up for a second. There's really two parts of application. How do we do this? One, you got to make sure if we're, gonna, if we're going to be a church who walks in unity through humility, one, you got to actually know Jesus for real. And I just provide that as, as, as a minor thing to say, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith that happened at a moment in life when you responded to the conviction of the Spirit and the message of the gospel in repentance and faith, if that has not happened, then I would go and, and with Scripture, examine your salvation. Come talk to one of us as a pastor. Let us walk through with that because it is impossible for you and I to think humbly if we do not have the mind of Christ and if we are in Christ, we don't have the mind of Christ. So we've got to be in Christ. But two, it's this. As a believer, if I'm in Christ, I am taking my thoughts captive. It means I'm going to think rightly. I'm going to think correctly about who I am and who we are before God. It means I'm going to think, to serve, and to give, counting others as more important. It means we think about obeying for God's glory. It means we value God's vindication of our lives more than our own building of a kingdom. And it means that if we're going to take captive our thoughts and think correctly, it may mean that we even have to repent because we discover in our own hearts a pride and an arrogance, even if it doesn't come out in a bold, brash, self-promoting, ugly, and bigoted way. It means instead of being preoccupied with introspective, self-absorbed, egocentric thoughts, we turn our minds outward, seeing ourselves before God and the value of others. Church family means taking our thoughts captive where we get to a point, not where we feel humble, but where we are thinking humbly. And I emphasize that because sometimes we think that I've got to feel humble. I've got to feel, listen, that's not saying anything about how you and I feel. It says about how you and I ought to think. Why? Because the way you and I think will always ultimately lead us down the road to what we feel. And I will never forget the point when I looked at my dad one day as a young man and I said, yeah, dad, I just, I'm really just praying for humility in my life. And my dad looked right back at me without missing a beat and said, stop that. That's unbiblical. I said, what do you mean it's unbiblical? And he said, have you ever found a verse in the Bible that tells you to pray for humility? So I stopped and I thought and I looked. I've got news for you, church family. There's nowhere in scripture that tells you to pray for humility. You know why? Because there's a bunch of commands that say, humble yourself. Because humility is not something God bestows upon us. It is an act of humbling ourselves, of thinking correctly, of taking the mind of Christ and bowing before the Lord and seeing ourselves correctly before God and seeing others. So if we're going to live this out, church family, we will have to take captive our thoughts. And if we are going to, in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves and understand Walking in unity with God and each other, walking in humility with each other will mean that church and people will inconveniently interrupt our scheduled plans, dreams, and aspirations. And we have a choice to make when that happens. There's one other aspect to how we do this. 
Now, I want to be clear, we're actually going to come back to these verses next week because there is so much for us to understand here. So we're going to walk through them quickly this morning because it's vital we see this to rightly apply. How are we going to, in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves? Look at verse 5. It's going to mean seeing Jesus clearly and taking his mindset. Have this attitude. By the way, have this attitude, it's a present tense command, means it has to be all the time. It's active, means you and I got a choice to make, and it is a command, not a suggestion. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen to this description of Jesus. Who, although he exists, present tense, he has always existed and is existing and will always exist, who exists in the form of God. That word form there means that, that he is God. Let me just give you the simple definition from this morning. We'll come back and unpack it more next week. Jesus is God. He's not begotten of God as if he's a son who came around. He has always been God. He will always be God. Jesus is God, who although he exists in the form of God, he did not regard, reckon, lead his thoughts. How does Jesus think? He is God, but being God, he did not reckon his equality with God as a thing to be grasped or literally a thing to be lorded over people means that God thinks humbly. And don't mistake what I mean there. That doesn't mean that God thinks weakly. God knows he's God, and he's not afraid to act like God. But God thinks humbly. Because Jesus did not see his godhood as a thing to be lorded over. Isn't it interesting? We're about to enter the Christmas season. Jesus didn't just, as God, show up in the first century, roll into Rome with massive neon lights and a posse of angels behind him going, here's God, everybody, look. How'd he come? To a nobody blue-collar working family from a backwater town that no one in the world knew, he would spend his first night in the feeding tray of animals. He would grow up for 30 years in total obscurity. He would be rejected overwhelmingly by his own people. His own family would think he's crazy. And this is what it, and, and in all of that, in living and coming, so what it says, he emptied himself. He didn't cease being God, but he chose, what it means by emptied, he, he chose not to use his godhood for his own ability. So let me put it real practically. It means when Jesus is in the carpenter shop and he's hammering that chair he's making and he cuts himself, he doesn't look both ways and then heal himself means he went and got a Band-Aid just like the rest of us. Taking the form of a bondservant. That's that word from the beginning that literally does mean slave, doulos. And being made in the likeness of men. It's like you and I, difference being you and I are born from a mother and father and we have an inherited sin nature. Jesus did not have an inherited sin nature. He was like us in every way, though without sin. And being found in the appearance of a, as a man, listen to what it says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God himself stepped down out of heaven and glory and came and lived in a world filled with suffering and hardship 
taking on the very form of mankind, inserting himself where he would have to go through the same suffering and hardship. And he humbled himself. He made himself low, gave up prestige and comfort, even to the point of death. Uh, process that with me, church family. We spend as a culture all our time trying to find any way possible to escape the one date that every one of us has, death. God, whom death can't touch, chose to come down and die. He chose to come down and die, and not just die, but death on a cross. Listen to how one historian speaks of the death on the cross. Death on the cross was not a heroic death a noble death, but a shameful death, a disgraceful death. The cross displayed the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty, satisfying the primitive lust for revenge. It exhibited the most brutal form of sadistic torture and execution ever invented by malicious human minds. Now listen to this. Roman law reserved the cross for the worst criminals and the most violent insurrectionists. And even out of those, the only people who were crucified were either slaves or foreigners. It carried out the, 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 the execution publicly in prominent places. And a Roman citizen would never be executed by crucifixion. Cicero wrote and said this, the cross is the most extreme of the tortures inflicted. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed, which is why in Roman society, to speak of the cross was, was to speak of something obscene that you did not talk about in conversation. And add to that that Jesus wasn't a Roman, he was a Jew, and the Jews viewed death hanging on a tree as a curse of God. And by the way, all the physical horrible cruelty of the cross wasn't what Jesus was on the cross doing. He was on the cross drinking up eternal hell, the wrath of God on you and I's behalf. So church family, if we're, we don't just have to take captive our thoughts, we have to see Jesus clearly. We have to see Jesus clearly. And it literally says to take the same attitude, to take the same mind, to lead our thoughts in the same way as Christ. We find Christ thinks humbly. He thinks rightly. He knows who he is and he knows what his father's will is and he knows what he came to do. We see he seeks to, to serve, to give. He laid his life down as a ransom for many. He, he thinks to obey the will of God for God's glory. He looks for God's vindication, and we'll look at that next week in verses 9, 10, and 11. Here's the sad reality, church family, is if Jesus took the attitude many of us in the church take today, we wouldn't be saved. Because for many of us today, I don't really know that I want to be a part of that church family. I'm not, my love tank isn't getting full. Well, I got news. Jesus came not because we loved him, but because he loved us. We didn't fill any love tank for Jesus. I, I don't, that's just too much to be asked to serve. I mean, I just, I just can't give that up. I, I, I just, I've got to have this, this for me. You and I deserve nobody serving us. Amen. Jesus owns everything, Amen. but he came to serve. 
If Jesus took the attitude many of us, he would have looked down and said, you know what? I'm going to be kind of nice and not wipe out humanity. But man, the thought to go down there and live and to experience everything as they experience, to show them in their stubbornness the truth, to proclaim the gospel, and ultimately let them put me through the most horrible form of death as I bear the wrath of my Father for all eternity on the cross, mm, that's a little bit too much to ask. And all with the understanding that even if I do all of it, there's no guarantee even a single person will respond. So church family, if we're going to walk in humility, we have to take on the mindset of Christ and to refuse to do so, to regard ourselves as more excellent, to live with us as the center of our own universe. It is the height of arrogance because it says that we are greater than Jesus. And you and I are not greater than Jesus. Jesus said it's enough for us to be like the teacher. In fact, the best any of us are in this room are so valued by Christ that we are saved by grace through faith. And because we are saved by grace through faith, because we are bound together as a church family in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, if we are going to walk in unity through humility with each other, we must see who he is and how he's acted clearly. Because how he has acted is humbly for the glory of God in our lives. Amen. So church family, how are we going to think about ourselves today? How are we going to think about each other? As God calls us to be a gospel-driven church, how are we going to think about whatever path he would take us down, whatever change he would lead us through, uh, whatever, whatever hardship he would walk with us through? How are we going to think about that? Will we think about that in our own self-centered kingdom, or will we think about that humbly saying, Lord, to you alone be all glory, so others may live. My answer is yes, humbly at your feet. Let's pray. Father, I truly believe one of the greatest problems inside of our American churches today, uh, there's theological problems, there's ministerial problems, God, but so much of even those problems comes back to the fact that we have an overinflated view of ourselves. And God, when we really process, Jesus, who you are and what you've done, it leaves us no excuse to think this life and this church is about ourselves. God, this church exists for you. And when we walk in this place, Lord, even me as pastor, when I walk in this place, my heart better look at every one of my brothers and sisters in this room as more valuable than myself. And Lord, if we will humble ourselves, if we will humble ourselves and think humbly and regard one another, Holy Spirit, you will absolutely bring a unity that when the world looks in and sees it, they cannot deny it. And Jesus, you will be so high and lifted up and glorified. People may respond, people may not, but they will know the truth. 
and have to make a choice. So Holy Spirit, as you move and you lead us to respond, find us faithful to respond to you today. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.